Scuba Obsessed is... What is Scuba Obsessed? Talk Recorded live. Scuba <laughs> Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Obsessed episode 284 is recorded live June 2nd, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it seems like everybody is graduating. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here. And how about the weather again? We've had some beautiful weather. Absolutely gorgeous weather. This this is the weather where I, I don't want it to go any farther. Just stop right here. If you, yeah, either flying or jumping or diving or pretty much anything in the last couple of days. You can't beat it. You got just a little <laughs> bit of rain to keep things watered and enough sun to keep everybody happy. Well, you don't need a wetsuit for diving today. You didn't need a wetsuit? No, I, don't, I never really went over nine feet, but I had my holy suit on. Oh. <laughs> and I was, I could have done without it, and I should have taken my gloves off. I was too hot. Ah, and that's in a wetsuit. Yeah. So that was, uh, what What body of water were you in when you did that? That was Pawpaw Lake today. Okay. We were doing our normally Thursday, Thursday. Mm-hmm. Thursday, Thursday. Yeah. We only had uh, one, two, three, three in the water, one standby on the shoreline. But uh, our, our regulars were out today. But I swear it, it probably was 75 on the surface. Yes. So and if you are high. in Michigan, you want to learn how to dive, you can't beat this time of year to do it. Nah, the thermal climb about 15 feet, then it dropped about 60. Yeah. That's, that's enough to let you realize that you do need a wetsuit. <laughs> yeah, it comes in handy. Yeah, because you can drop down below the 60 for a little bit without a wetsuit, but you'll wish you had one very quickly. Yes. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We have a few people in the chat room. We have Vanessa, the mermaid, is in there. We have a couple anonymous guests. Uh, and if you drop us a line at uh, the show at scubaobsessed.com and, and give us some feedback. You know, are you doing a guest number in the chat room just because you want to remain anonymous or you drastically hate the talk shoe login process, which is also a valid reason? Well, let's see the first one. We've got, uh, it felt like a light news week, but, uh, I did find quite a few. We have a follow up on the Costa Concordia trial. It looks like it appears that the appeal for the captain didn't go the way the captain would like. This one's out of Reuters. Italian court upholds Costa Concordia captain's 2012 shipwreck sentence, the 16-year prison sentence for the former captain of the Costa Concordia cruise liner, was upheld Tuesday by Italian appeals court. Francisco Chatino who was commanding the ship when it hit the rocks, and I've probably mispronounced his name 20 different ways, 
off the Tuscan island of Gagilio, killing 32 people, and the prosecutor had both appealed against a sentence handed down last year. He was found guilty by a lower court of multiple manslaughter, causing a shipwreck and abandoning passengers in one of the highest-profile shipping disasters uh, in recent times. The appeals court upheld the ruling, rejecting the prosecutor's request to extend the term to 27 years and three months, while uh, the defendant's lawyer asked for him to be acquitted. Isn't that always the way you got the two extremes? Yeah, but like you said earlier, though, this went better for him this time because he has 16 years. The appeals court wanted 27 years, so he came off better than what yes. may have happened to him. Right. It could have. Yeah, they could have extended it. It You don't hear a lot of that in the U.S. where, an, where a prosecutors will appeal wanting a longer sentencing, or do we just not hear about it? I don't think I've ever heard of it. Yeah, so this might be something that's that we just don't have in the U.S. If, if anything, it's usually the other way around. Yeah, we can start it this way, though. I like that. Well, there's times where you you see those ridiculous, uh, you know, somebody's found guilty, but then they give them suspended sentence for time served, and he really should be getting ten, twenty years. What I don't understand is you look at the fines for this: a million euros, euros for plea bargains from five officials. Uh, what is it? Uh, the island government got three three hundred thousand euros. Mm-hmm. Yet that lady who got supposedly issues with uh, talcum powder got seventy five million. Her estate did. Well, that's the difference between uh, foreign courts and U.S. courts. <laughs> yeah, thirty two people, carelessness, something like that. Yeah. Well, in U.S. courts, we look at all fines as coming from infinitely deep pockets, not realizing it's just like taxes. You pay it as a con- as a consumer. You know, when that when a penalty comes out, you're paying it. Uh, for example, you got a car company who's found in violation of something, and you give that family three hundred million dollars. Uh, they're adding that onto the cost of cars. Plus, the insurance company who covered them is adding it on the premiums for everybody else in the same industry. Oh, absolutely. So that it all just comes right back to you. You can hand that out and feel good and. Go home, but you're paying it. Yeah. Then we have a man who's found guilty of shipwreck salvage offenses. At least this one's involving silver or tin or something like that, some kind of metal. Yep. He was charged with a marine licensing offense after unlawfully taking tin igots. That's tin. Tin. T-I-N, more than 50,000 pounds from a shipwreck off the coast of Cornwall. And that's pounds as in U.K. currency, not as in uh, weight. Neil Isherwood of Bury Lancaster was sentenced to a community order with, uh, with 150 hours of unpaid work after being found guilty of marine licensing offense by a jury in Newcastle upon Tyne Crown Court. Order with 150 hours... I guess we're used to over here that a community, uh, community services sir- is, you don't get, you don't get paid for. It. They they deliberately say you don't get paid for it. Now, the court heard how Isherwood is one of two responsible for the unlawful removal of tin agates that were valued in excess of fifty thousand pounds from the shipwreck of the SS Cheerful, 
That was obviously named before it sank. The cargo <laughs> ship sunk in 1885 off the north coast of Cornwall. The defendant, together with Hank D. Blome, a Dutch national and the owner of the uh, Panamanian registered vessel Bella, had set off from Holland on July 15th, 2013. Over the course of the next fortnight, visited a number of wrecks situated around the coast of the United Kingdom. On August 1st, 2013, the MV Bella was intercepted by HMS Severn and boarded by Marine officers from the National Management Organization, MMO, working with the Royal Navy. On board, the officers identified a quantity of tin tin ingots with further investigation revealed the salvage from the wreck of the SS Cheerful. Further investigation also revealed the defendants did not have a Marine license authorizing the removal. Under the Marine and Coastal Act, Access Act of 2009, a marine license is required for the removal of any substance or object from the seabed in the UK marine area using a vehicle, vessel, or other marine structure. In English waters, the MMO is a licensing authority. The court has now heard how uh, de Blome had previously pleaded guilty to the offense at North Tyneside Magistrate's Court on the 29th of May 2015, for which he received a 2,000-pound fine is ordered to pay proportional of the prosecuting cost, or pay a proportion. Isherwood, who was sentenced May 20th, 2016, told the court he was self-employed cargo recovery consultant based in Manchester, had previously pled not guilty of the offenses and asked the case be tried by the Crown Court. After a four-day trial in Newcastle, the jury returned the unanimous guilty verdict sentencing Isherwood the recorder of Newcastle, his honored judge, Sloan QC, said, I have no doubt that you played a leading role in this exercise. The offense is committed deliberately, and I am satisfied that you attempted to conceal your activities. And bringing this prosecution, the MMO, supported by the Royal Navy officers from the Fishery Protection Squad, took part in boarding of the vessel and provided valuable evidence to the court. The prosecution also supported by Historic England, from which Dr. Christopher Peter gave expert evidence, as a provenance and historic value of the tin ingots, which were salvaged from the wreck, he also told the court the harm that can be caused by important archaeological value from unregulated salvage activities. I suppose what that means is they didn't get their cut first. Well, how is tin worth a lot? Because they say 50,000 pounds, meaning the value. But is this a case where... Yeah, what I would like to know is, was this an active salvage operation, meaning somebody was going to take these, sell them for scrap and make a tidy bit of money? Or is this one of those things where they had three of them and somebody's decided that they're worth 18000 a piece because they had a stamp on them? Well, 10 sells right now for $7.21 in U.S. dollars per pound. Well, it sounds pretty good, actually. To well, me. that's more than lead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they just don't give you a lot of details. Nor why you have to have a license and how much the license costs. Yeah. Well, we're in, I mean, this is in the U.K., which has a little bit different law than the U.S. In the U.K., I don't think they. there's any expectation that as a citizen you have any rights. They are different. I'm sure there's a bunch of people in the UK just cringing now because I've said that, but uh, yeah, yeah, they they came from a little bit different political background in that they had to fight one right at a time, and 
I don't think they've ever gotten what I would consider the equivalent of what we've had in the U.S. and slowly losing. I I went down. There's uh, at the end of that article. There's three pictures. Mm-hmm. Take a look at the third one down. Divers made to pay sixty three thousand five hundred for undeclared shipwreck raids. See, and that's what I was wondering. Was that what these guys were doing? Because th- that right there is trophies. They're just people who are diving, and they're taking trophies off the wreck. Although it's thought the combined value of the treasure was more than two hundred fifty thousand pounds. See, that's the thing is people are are. It, it's they're like contestants on uh, the Antiques Roadshow, where because something's rare, they think that they've they've got a million dollars. It's not only how rare it is; it's how desirable is it. Well, I mean, one of the items was an unknown two hundred year old wreck carrying cargo. An unknown two hundred year wreck doesn't sound like an archaeological treasure to me. Hundred years is not that long ago. And like I'm looking at the photos of this, and I think if I had a pub and I want some decorations, these may be okay depending on the decor. But in general, these are not valuable artifacts. No, they're copper. That's about it. Uh, yeah, and and they're not in the best of condition. I, I kind of like this little steampunkish looking cowling on the gas lamps, but. Yeah, you know, the other piece, you know, is in pretty rough shape. They just look like lights we found on the, uh, some of the items we found in the river. Right. Matter of fact, just like that. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and people are trying to convince that these are unique and that they're learning something, but you can't tell me that any of these objects that are in that, that are in this picture, they don't have a thousand examples of throughout the country. Well, they talked about some of the other items these guys took were eight bronze cannons. Three propellers from German submarines, tin wow. and lead ingots, and other artifacts worth a combined value of twenty two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, I can see where somebody might get a little teed off. Well, you their know, the- diary entries indicated they used explosives and sophisticated cutting equipment to free wreck material. Well, if you're taking the props from the German subs, <laughs> yeah, I think you're using cutting equipment. And it's probably not just a hacksaw. That's uh uh, something they can do some cutting. Yeah, Bronco torch. Wow. I like the part here that says "not finders keepers." <laughs> Not finders keepers. Well, you, wherever you're at, you have to be aware of what the rules are. Right. The MCA's receiver of wreck said it's not a case of finder keepers. Our message is clear: all wreck material found within or brought within the UK territorial waters must be reported to the receiver of wreck. They have 28 days to declare their fines. In some things, I think the UK has a little bit better laws on discovery. Oh, their their metal detecting and treasure hunting is very good. Now, is is underwater the same or or not? I don't know. I I would suppose if you're not on a shipwreck and you find it standing alone, it would probably be under the same aspect. I like the way it is. You report it. They value it. If they want it, they pay you the value. I yeah that's you can't beat that. No, you can't. That's I love that. And then what that does it, is it is it encourages people to look, it, and they can justify it. Great, you buy it, you show it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And then we have what's that? I said that's interesting. That was a nice article there. Yeah, yeah but 
aerial survey documenting ocean uh, documenting boy I'm slurring my word uh aerial survey documenting ocean debris around Hawaii so a uh, study of eight main Hawaiian islands shows that ocean de- debris is regularly accumulating most of it is not linked with the March 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan state officials said this Tuesday the aerial survey shows that much of the debris that accumulates in the shore of Hawaii is from items discarded across specific officials in the State Department of Land and Natural Resources said in the statement, ocean currents can bring trash from as far away as the U.S. mainland and Asia to the shores of Hawaii. In order to be characterized, the potential ecological consequences of tsunami and other debris, it is important to quantify it said uh, this is Kristen Moy, state's marine debris coordinator. Understanding the type, size, and locations of debris accumulating off Hawaii Hawaiian coast is crucial in developing plans to streamline removal and mitigate negative impacts. The debris, mostly plastic but also wood, household goods, fishing gear, and other items accumulates in hot spots around the islands, mostly in the north and east shores where ocean currents deposit the trash. The study did not examine individual pieces of debris to determine where they came from, but rather looked at the size and types of trash as well as their locations to determine the amount that was produced by the 2011 tsunami and earthquake. Survey found very limited amount of debris associated with the Japanese tsunami, said Susan Case, chairwoman of the Department of Land and Natural Resources. Boy, it's like everybody had to get their name in the article. Uh, most of what was mapped as common everyday items that someone haphazardly tossed onto the ground or directly into the water. Well, some of these pictures look like Silver Beach the morning after 4th of July celebration. Yes. Yeah, a lot of ours comes right from the people directly, not washing well, up. The exception was this year uh, when they were cleaning the beaches. Mm-hmm. They had more debris than they had had in years. Really? Yes. They had truckloads. So th- when you say debris, you mean just trash? Trash? Just what it looks like here in these pictorials, the pictures. Lots of plastic. Lots yeah. of plastic. And that's, that's just a really bad thing is I was not raised that way. You know, we whatever you packed in, you took out, no yeah. matter where you were. You just didn't deposit it on the beach. But there, sen- there tends to be a trend now where there is a select group, and it doesn't take a lot of people, who just litter, you know, and think it's normal. I got there metal detect sometime. The three items that really pissed me off is sparklers. They just stick them down in the sand, not realizing kids are going to run through that sand, and they're going to poke their feet with them. The other ones is beer cans. They bury them in the sand deliberately because they don't want to take them to the trash and bottles. And sometimes they're broken. They just bury the damn things. Yeah, this is a beach where people are going to be spending time barefoot and laying down. So you're going to take broken glass. Instead of picking it up and throwing it away, you're just going to bury it. And I I understand part of the issue is they don't have enough trash receptacles out there because they're generally jam full. We could help minimize that by putting twice as many freaking garbage cans out there, that would help a little bit. 
Well, more would help, but if you've like, and I'm sure you've been down there. I've, I've worked security at the event for about a dozen years, and I don't know. I don't think you could get enough trash cans. You could line the sidewalk with trash cans, and it wouldn't be enough. No, you'd have to put them on the beach. I mean, well, when I'm you, finding diapers well, I, out there, you know, spoil, soil diapers, give me a break. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason for that. Well, well what happens is, and for people who don't know, to give you a little bit of background, is in St. Joe, Benton Harbor area, you've got the river that's going out and you have the pier. To the south of the pier is a is a very popular beach called Silver Beach. Uh, all the way until the 70s, it was actually an amusement park. It was a prime location for tourism. On the north side of the pier, you have Tiscornia Beach. Both beaches are popular. Silver Beach is now being run by the county as a county park. Uh, and fireworks for Memorial. I think they do it for Memorial Day, don't they? Maybe not fireworks, but for the 4th of July, uh, for uh, I think we still have a Venetian festival. That kind of comes and goes, but they have a Venetian festival. Uh, and, and it just gets packed. So on a typical day, that beach is busy all day. And, and they, do, they do well. You have to have a, a pass, a county park pass to park there. Anybody can just walk in. There's no charge to walk in, but if you are going to park your car, you're going to pay, I don't know what it is, $8. It's probably 20-some dollars for a yearly pass. And there's bathrooms. There's men and women's bathrooms where you can change. And I don't think there's really any indoor showers. There might be some outdoor showers. There's a, a vendor where uh, who usually sells food. Then occasionally they'll do festivals where they'll have more going on in the afternoon on a day of fireworks it will typically get so busy by about 5 or 6 p.m. in the afternoon that you can't move on that beach it's wall-to-wall bodies so by that point in time any sort of trash pickup if you have trash cans and usually an event trash can they're usually cardboard boxes about two feet by two feet by four feet and uh, those will just be packed and they're not able to make their the the crews on the grounds aren't able to make their way out to retrieve and empty them. So at that point, people just start dumping stuff on the ground and it accumulates. And if you happen to have a, a windy day, that a lot of that trash ends up in the water. Yeah. And I can certainly see how how the same thing is happening here in Hawaii. What's going on is you've anything that's floating that's in those uh, ocean currents and happens to, to point to the islands is going to get deposited there. I would think that they would want to do a follow-up survey based on this and actually do a little bit better classification. So they said they had one island had 8,000 pieces of debris counted the most populated island had the least amount of debris with just under a thousand pieces, most of which is found on the island's northern tip. Now, why do you think that is? Would that be because people are picking it up? I don't know. I'm looking at the areas here. These are not your spots that when you come to Hawaii, you're going to go visit and surf. Mm-hmm. So these are not populated. I'm looking at the footprints. There's only one set of footprints, and that's whoever took the pictures. Yeah, so these are just because you know, it's it's a there's a lot of shoreline and you have the popular 
you know, this is not a hotel beach. This is not a public access beach. This is just, it might be a long state property, but it's, it's not a spot where people are going to. Yeah. And these are not aerial photos anyway. No, there's some, somebody, some intern <laughs> had a, had a job or somebody had a job and they went out and were doing statistical counting. And the photos we're seeing are probably the ones that showed the most interesting photos. There's one where it looks like a net kind of balled up. So that just goes to show that anything you throw in the water doesn't go away. We've been saying that for a while. Especially if it's plastic. Plastic seems to last forever. Now, going back to the sparklers, is there any reason why you couldn't make sparklers out of something other than wire? They'd melt. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, couldn't you do it like, like incense? You have incense sticks. They're on, oh, you know, I don't know what it is, wood, bamboo, something. Couldn't you do the same thing for sparklers? Never really thought about it. I don't know. It just seems like something that would eventually break down would be much better than the wire. I don't have a problem with wire because I consider that to be a natural material. Other than on the beach, you're going to run it right through the bottom of your foot. Yeah, it just makes me cringe when I think about that. Now, here's one I think you may have an opinion on, Mac. <laughs> arcane law, and I don't know who chose the term arcane, to give Rhode Island historic shipwrecks. And wait for it to load. Oh, crap. Bait and switch, idiots. Well, I got one. Didn't come up bait to twitch. No, I've got the wants to do the whole. Uh, here, I I reloaded. Uh, it's it's these these websites. They want you to do the survey. I don't do the survey. Okay, this one's out of Providence, Rhode Island. The ship of legendary explorer Captain James Cook used to sail around the world and is found at the bottom of Newport Harbor, Rhode Island. And if it is, uh, it said around the world is found. If yeah. These people need to write a little differently. It's all uh, clickbait now. If it's found, Rhode Island will own it outright because of a legal maneuver it, maneuver it took two decades ago based on obscure centuries-old maritime practice. In 1999, Rhode Island went to federal court in Providence to do what is referred to as arresting, and it arrested the ships that were in the harbor, having the government take possession of them so federal court could consider them the state's ownership claim. A 1988 federal law that gave states control of abandoned shipwrecks embedded in their waters was a basis for the Rhode Island's ownership claim. Uh, this said Roger Williams, University of Law professor Jonathan Gutoff, an expert in maritime law. The Endeavor was a British flag vessel that was privately owned at the time it was sunk. The British government could have claimed it owns the Endeavor if it compensated the owner for the loss, though it could be argued its rights were surrendered when it when the Navy sank the vessel. No one came forward with a claim. The court found Rhode Island is the sole and only lawful true and right owner of all the non-motor wooden shipwrecks in the two-mile area where ships were sunk and the case was closed in 2000. Cook used the endeavor to claim Australia for the British during its its historic 1768-71 through 71 voyage. Researchers now believe the Endeavor was part of a fleet of 13 ships scuttled by the British during the Revolutionary War in 1778 to blockade Newport Harbor from the French. 
the Rhode Island Marine Archaeological Archaeology Project, which is leading the search effort, said it early May it's closing in on Cook's ship. It's narrowed the search to a group of sunken wrecks, which is already mapped for the five sites in the group. Arresting the ship was a smart move. In the colonial era, if a ship was in port and the money was ordered for repair, owed for repairs, supplies, or other fees, it could be impossible to locate the owner or even figure out who the owner was. And this is according to Dennis Nixon, an expert in maritime and coastal law at the University of Rhode Island. If you had a claim against a ship, you wanted to press your claim before it left your jurisdiction. This was before wire transfers. They had to have some security, and the security was the ship itself. The claimant could go to Admiralty Court and have the interest or ownership of the vessel declared. The court could secure the ship in port until the bill was paid or until an ownership dispute was settled, Nixon said. The court could also sell a ship at auction if the bill went unpaid. So what they're saying is that they're, they're using the law that you can seize a ship if it's in the port, if there's some cause to do so, meaning it owed money or you believe that to be abandoned. And could they really claim things they didn't know that were there? It looks like they just blanketly said, hey, if there's something on the bottom, we're taking it right now. I think they can, actually. I mean, Michigan did. Well, they did. The courts let them. Interesting to see if they ever finally drill down to find which one of those five ships is that one. I, it's going to be a challenge. It's just they're, it's going to be if they get lucky enough to find that right bit of evidence or material which will identify it. And then we have a group that is teaching African-American children to swim and scuba dive. A Nashville nonprofit has worked for more than 20 years to stop the deadly trend of African-American children drowning at a much higher rate than other children. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the African-American children drown at, a rate, drown at a rate of nearly three times higher than their Caucasian peers. The Tennessee Aquatic Project works with inner, mostly inner-city kids ages 8 to 18 years old to teach them how to swim and scuba dive. We're not a competitive swim team, co-founder and program director Kenneth Stewart said. Most important thing is they learn how to survive, how to swim. The motto of TAP is first we learn, then we teach. We take a more holistic approach to teaching young people as opposed to Metro where they teach your, your child to swim. But with TAP, we're a more holistic approach, not only in diving like today. We have an was it etiquette class? Etiquette class. Mm-hmm. Teaching young folk, young people what forks and knives. Oh, okay. I was trying to figure out what that had to do with diving. So they're just, they're just doing some basic classes. So they're, what they've done is they've identified things that inner city kids might not be given the opportunity to learn. So at least they have some confidence when they're in different social situations to handle. In the case of swimming, if your family doesn't swim, if, if your parents never learned to swim, they may not, I mean, they're not going to be able to teach you, and they may not even care to have you swim. And what happens is everybody goes through that, I'm a teenager and I'm a mortal stage, and if you don't know how to swim but you like the water, that's where things can start to get a little dicey. 
So what they've done is they've gone, uh, TAP has helped more than 250 young people, according to its information page. The alumni include 26 Red Cross lifeguards, 14 Red Cross water safety instructors, 7 Red Cross certified lifeguards. There are 27 PADI certified open water divers, 3 PADI certified rescue divers, 13 PADI certified master divers, and 1 certified hard app diver out of the people that they've trained. Some of their, some of their divers of, uh, of the program, teens have traveled to, to Cairo, Egypt, Carico, the Netherlands, Antilles, Nassau, Bahamas, and various American destinations. I, I, th- I approve of that program. We need more divers. They said that swimming lessons reduce the, the risk of drowning by 88%. And they said that uh, in the inner city, African-American children, 70% can't swim. I wonder what the standard number is. I don't know. I I wonder how could we find that out here. Let's see. Let's do a search. What percent of the population... And swim. Uh, this one is a Time Magazine article from May 2014. Most Americans think they can swim just fine, but a new survey reveals that 44% don't know basic water safety skills. Only 56% of Americans can perform the five core swimming skills. And this is uh, based on a recent survey conducted on behalf of the American Red Cross. I'm just looking at a CDC study. Mm-hmm. Between one-third and one-half can't swim. So it really doesn't look like, I mean, that's across the broad population, including everybody. Yeah. That's not a good number either. So, so my- 54% of children between 12 and 18 can do no more than splash around the shallow end of a pool. That is scary. See, my family, and yeah, we're a little biased because we are all raised around the water. Uh, I mean, that was like a rite of passage. If you couldn't swim, there was a lot of things you weren't allowed to do. And you wanted to learn how to swim because you didn't want to have to be chained up. And And here's that white children were most likely to self-report with 58% of those between 4 and 18 claiming the ability to to traverse more than a pool length. Then it went in and said 42% of Hispanic and Latino children are strong swimmers. It said Asian American and Native American came in at 34 and 32%. That are strong swimmers or can't swim? Uh, I'm assuming can because then it said African Americans reported the fewest strong swimmers at 31%. You know, and in these numbers, I I tend to believe. I think that these are pretty close. But even the best isn't good. And there's plenty of opportunity to learn to swim. I think in Michigan, I don't know if it's still a requirement, but it was a requirement until very recently that everybody who went through the public schools had to learn how to swim. He had to take a swimming class. Now, it's possible, like many classes, 
to get to go through the class and still not know how to swim at the end. But wouldn't that preclude you having to have a swimming pool? And most schools do not. Uh, yes. Uh, in now I was when I was at that age, and I, I knew how to swim fairly well. Uh, our our school did have a pool. In Bering Springs, I think what they were doing is they were actually walking over to the uh, uh, the what they now call the RISA, which used to be called the ISD. They had a pool, and that's where that was done. Um, but, I mean, you're right. I don't know what the schools who don't have pools or access to pools were doing. So maybe they did eventually take that away as a requirement. But it's certainly something that everybody should learn how to do. And uh, actually, you know, we mentioned it. I had a brother who didn't know how to swim, and he ended up dying from it. Uh, His car slid off the road. Uh, He went into the river. Uh, He was able to climb on the roof of the truck. It sank, and he drowned. Then here, another up, uplifting story. <laughs> we have cave divers who go back for their friends. Now, I should have given you some more time to read through this article, Mac. Uh, we won't read through the whole thing on the show. This uh, is this, not the one from Australia, is it? No, no, this one's different. This one is in the BBC. Uh, it was published May 9th, 2016. And it talks about uh, in February 2014, two divers died at a depth of 100 meters in a cave system in Norway. The authorities have said it was too dangerous to retrieve the bodies, but four friends of the men decided to take the risk, and seven weeks later they descended to do the recovery. And, wow, it's it's an amazing story. Um, You can get to it on our Scoop It page. Scoopit.it, the Scoob Obsessed is the uh, is the site. You can, you can get to it from our website, www.scoobobsessed.com. Go look for Scoopit and head on over. If you follow Twitter, you would have gotten the original link when I posted last week. Uh, if you look at the, the map on here, it's quite an involved cave system. So what there is, there's an entrance, and you have uh, a couple... Uh, it looks like a what would be a fairly safe cave system, and much of it's above wa- uh, water level. And then they have this, I don't know, you call it like a loop that goes down to 135 meters. But then it gradually comes back up, and there's another exit. But Interesting just, map. Yeah. Does not sound like a fun dive to me. Wasn't a fun dive, and then the recovery wasn't exactly trouble free either. And none of these guys who were involved were slouches with cave diving. Wow. Okay. Now, something a little bit closer to home. Summertime in Chicago, they're talking about some locations. 
when they say locations, we're talking about locations to go diving. So, Mac, I, I wonder how many of these uh, you're familiar with. And what they're saying, what they're talking about is these are all shipwreck sites. So they're saying diving on Chicago shipwrecks. The first one they have is a, the 12th Street Beach Wreck. That's which, one we talked about last week. Yep, which is just south of the Adler Planetarium. The shipwreck is embedded in the sand and may be the closest wreck to shore and can be walked to. Shoreline erosion triggered by the planetarium's construction in 1925 exposed the schooner's hull while Stern had been paved over. On a good day, the ribs can still be seen. They paved over the, the shipwreck. So we heard about that one. Now there's the Lady Elgin, which in 1860. Oh, come on, Flash. Get the heck out of my way. Um, the 252-foot steamer sank in 1860 which they consider to be the op- the worst open water disaster in the lake. One summer morning, the storm rammed the side of Lady Elgin, broke it in half. Many of the passengers floated to the shore from a wood from the deck, only to be drowned in the surf. Actually, she was rammed at 2.30 in the night by the schooner uh, that hold it, backed up, uh, accessed its damage, and then couldn't find Lady Elgin. It was a gale, not a gale. But she was really turbulent out there. Mm-hmm. And the, like you said, the tragic part here, not only 300 people died, but they died within sight of shore because of the surf line. You know how it gets really bad in a storm? Oh, yeah. And you're only two, 300 yards out? Well, after sitting out there on planks of wood at 2.30 in the morning in September, oh, you're yeah. going to be a little hypothermic. So if they got that close to the beach and couldn't get, and, and that's when the majority of those people died. Well, also in this time period, 1860, we're talking about people learning to swim earlier. A lot of people couldn't swim. So, you know, you're breathing water, you're hypothermic, you can't hold on. And then the shoreline, uh, did they say they had breakwaters? A lot of times, at least nowadays, we've got a lot of stone. So just getting to shore doesn't help you. You could, you could be beaten to a pulp against the shoreline. So of the 400 passengers... 300 died. Yeah. Harry's, Harry, I know Harry, he dove this one, or he discovered it, and finally got title to it, too. It took years. Mm-hmm. Now, is Harry still around? Oh, yeah. I see him at the Owl World Underwater uh, last year again. Okay. Harry knows where the lot wrecks are that he just doesn't talk about. <laughs> yeah, remember that name after the show. i got to talk to you about him. Okay. Uh he, and you had mentioned he found the wreck in 1989, discovered artifacts including pre-Civil War musket swords and china plates. Yeah, that's only in 60 foot of water. Yeah, that's, a, that's not deep at all, at least for... No. I mean, and, and since then, it's been beat up by storms and stuff. See, my, my feeling on the Chicago side is it doesn't get... It's not that deep. No. It's a lot shallower than we have over in the... Uh, the Lake Michigan side. And then we have the Wings of Wind, which in 1866, it was heading to Chicago. The 142-foot schooner struck by the H.P. Baldwin, and the hold was flooded. The crew abandoned ship and was later rescued by the Baldwin. An attempt to raise a ship in 1866 failed. Rediscovered in 1987, the ship was stripped of all its hardware within a few weeks. <laughs> So that that was probably pre uh, rules on salvaging shipwrecks. 
Yes. Well, Michigan passed theirs in the 80, right around 87, 88. Mm-hmm. That's why you don't tell anybody you found one. <laughs> At least until you had all your stuff off. I didn't say that. <laughs> but I want to say it was in the 90s when they really started getting strict on the on the rules and changed it. The LR Dotty. 1898, uh, the Dottie was a 291-foot wooden steamship that broke in a storm in 1898. All 17 people aboard died as well as two cats. The wreck was discovered just five years ago, sitting upright in 300 feet of water. Brendan Ballad, Wisconsin Underwater Archaeological Station president, told NPR that he believes the bodies of those who perished are still inside, preserved by cold and intact as there are intact is there are no predators. I don't know if I believe that. No, they're not. Not at 300 Cam- feet in Lake Michigan. Yeah, the Kamloops, uh, that had a body on it. It was mostly, you've seen bodies when they decompose, that looks like wax. Yes. Uh, the engineer was in that, and he's he's been since removed. But right. uh, Yeah, that's because he was, feet. That's cause he was showing up in uh, videos. He showed up in the video. Nobody saw him until he looked at the video because they were all so narked out. Oh, yeah. That on air back then. So 300 feet of water, which is, it, it is cold down there, but it, it the, the the water turns over in Lake Michigan. So there's going to be times of the year where that water is 60 degrees down there. And, yeah, maybe not 60. But uh, you also have a lot of critters, I think, that would... Uh, I mean, would gobies chew on a body? I don't know. Yeah, I, w- I would. I would think that nothing would be. You know, maybe Superior. I could. I could buy it, but I don't think that. Yeah. Down in Mich- uh, down in Lake Michigan. Uh, now this next one, Eastland, in 1915, just after unmooring from its downtown dock in July 24, the Eastland listed the side and tipped over. The luxury steamer rested on Lake Bottom, just a few feet from the dock and 20 feet of water. Falling furniture trapped passengers inside and were either crushed to death or drowned. 850 people out of 2,500. Right. Now, the thing is, this article is supposed to be shipwrecks that you can that you can dive on. You can't dive on the Eastland, can you? No, the Eastland was then converted later on. Uh, couldn't, re- couldn't sell it to anybody because it was haunted. Uh-huh. There's a good, interesting story that they could get night watchmen because they, they got it back up. They were trying to refurbish it. And the night watchman, to keep people from stealing stuff, there was so many ghosts that they keep, could not keep people to stay on the boat at night. Anyway, the Navy bought it and turned it into the Wilmette. And the USS Wilmette's the same one that sank the U-boat, the uh, UC-97. Yes. Now, but the thing on the east, I mean, this this article is supposed to be all shipwrecks you can dive. And up till now, you could, but you cannot dive this one. No, you cannot dive that one. So I don't know if that was just some clickbait or if somebody didn't check the intern. You know, did they had, they had some intern. They said, here, find out all the shipwrecks that happened near here. Yeah. Uh, and they talk about Isle Royal, which is a little further away. But the yeah, trip from Chicago is worth it for many scuba divers. And that's a that's a good one. That's where that other shipwreck that you were talking about, where the engineer was still there. Yeah. They said national park rules protect the Isle Royal uh, ghost ships from scavengers. The 
tight interiors of 10 ships, which were sunk during the 19th and 20th centuries, make an ideal intermediate and expert divers. Full wetsuits or dry suits are required, and liveaboard vessel is needed. Yeah, I think there is very light accommodations on the uh, on the island. I know Boy Scouts do camping on there, but I can't believe anybody would want to dive and camp from the island. The liveaboard is how everybody I know does it. Oh yeah. Yeah, and they didn't talk about some of them that we talked about in previous weeks. So this is kind of light. Yeah. You know, the material service barge would have been a good one. The, uh, uh, what did you have? The, uh, that, uh, tugboat, which I'm drawing right, You got the Muskegon, even though that's off, off of Michigan. That's City. off Michigan City. And that's Chicago area. You're yeah. within a, you're, you're within an hour drive. And we're not even talking about coming over to St. Joe. Uh, something I would like to do is get some of these new Buffalo wrecks rediscovered in. Because I I haven't I've I don't think I've done a single dive out of New Buffalo. Really? No. You know we we go down to Michigan City or we go into Chicago, but we haven't done anything out of New Buffalo. And I know there's a few that are down there. I don't I don't know what condition they are because I haven't dove them. <laughs> yeah. And then a missing World War II aircraft was has been recently found in the Pacific. The uh, TMB-1C Avenger is one of several U.S. aircrafts scattered in the coral reefs and concealed within dense mangroves of forest in Palau Island chain. This latest find adds to the list of growing wrecks discovered by Project Recover, an effort dedicated to ongoing search for MIA aircraft and Associated Americans since World War II. The importance of our mission is reinforced that with each new discovery of a missing aircraft, this according to Eric Terrell, an oceanographer from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, one of project recovers three founding entities, said in a statement. So what they're trying to do is find these shipwrecks to put a little bit of closure and identify where they, not shipwrecks, planes, to find out where they Ended up. That Avenger doesn't look like much of a plane, does it anymore? It was a prop plane. It was uh, obsolete by 1939. It's a torpedo bomber. Yeah, that's that's uh, not much there, is it? Yeah. What kind of skin would that have had on the wings? It had metal. So it did have metal. Yeah, because it doesn't look like much. I'd still dive on it. And then in Florida, they have a sinkhole they discovered with some remains. I'm trying to remember if we covered this one or not. Some we of these talked get... about it a little bit, but this is different because they're bringing up bones. Yeah, I said knife, bones, and dung cast doubts on the Bering Strait theory. So, yeah, this is a little bit uh, more information. I think we talked about it last week, which is just uh, some of what they found. Yeah, last week they basically just talked about the flint knives. Mm-hmm. And here they're talking about stone knives, uh, you know, mast and bones, that kind of stuff. Yeah, as it said, in the hole, the divers, uh, oh, Halligan dived into a hole 126 times over the course of research wearing a headlamp as well as diving gear. That sounds like a cave dive. 
200 feet wide and 35 deep, feet deep, the sinkhole was as dark as the inside of a cow. I wonder how he knows that. I, I, that's what I'm wondering. It's like that. There's a lot of analogies I, did, I would do. I uh, haven't told somebody it was dark as the inside of a cow. In the hole, the divers found stone tools, including an inch-wide, several-inch-long stone knife and a biface, a stone flake sharp on both sides. The artifacts were found near mastodon bones. Reexamination of tusks pulled from the hole confirmed long grooves in the bones were made by people probably when they removed them from the skull and pulled the meat from its base. Each tusk this size would have had more than 15 pounds of tender, nutritious tissue in its pulp cavity. Uh, the biface tool, Halligan told Smithsonian Magazine, there's no, there's absolutely no way it is not made by people. There's no way a natural artifact in any shape or form. Which I believe that there, we've, we've got a good experience of identifying those type of tools and how they're made. Uh, I like Looking that. at the picture they show here. With a flashlight, I got every bit of foot to foot of visibility. Yeah, he's got some good vis down there. Yeah. I like that photo. That's an excellent photo. Water, uh, water said the watering hole would have made for easy pickings for humans looking to corner prey. Halligan suggested that ancient hunter-gatherers may have been the first season nomads of the East Coast traveling south in the winter. I think they're going to find people older than this. And you look at these terms. So they have one that says 13,000 years ago. Another says 14,800 years ago. Another says 15,500 years ago. So those are some pretty big spreads with those numbers. Researchers analyzed twigs and fossilized mastodon dung to date the bones and artifacts, finding them to be 14,550 years old. They said the ice-free land bridge is only open a few thousand years. So they're saying with that information, it's not how everybody got here. Now, how about this one? I the next. Let's jump down to the photos. This is some amazing photos. I would dive those. Yeah. So what we're referring to is we have in the Daily Mail out of the UK, they have a scuba diver who's showing images he took diving in um, sinkholes in the Mexican jungle. They're calling them Mayan sinkholes. Uh, The deep crater at the heart of the Mayan forest in the Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico, is believed to be the site of an ancient Mayan burial ground, the eerie cavern is filled with bones and fossils. Spectacular pictures were taken by French wildlife and underwater photographer Fabrice Gurin during a trip where he found out more about fascinating sinkhole. And I'm envious anytime I see somebody diving in water and you can't tell the water's there. He is just floating in that. Well, I say he... He's a photographer, so I don't know who's in the photo. <laughs> but it's nice that they had a, he did a, he did a smart thing where he had a diver in the photo. Yeah. So many times you see those and you don't have any sense of scale or clarity. But when you have a diver in there, it just kind of ties it. He says, when you 
Dive here, your adventurer and an archaeologist behind each rock, you discover a new scene. The atmosphere is unforgettable. To dive in the sulfur cloud would be a huge underwater cathedral, giant stalactites, stalagmites to encounter American crocodile. When you leave the cage, you see Mayan skeletons and beautiful fossils. It's incredible. And you can go through and see all the photos. And then we uh, we do have a video this week, which is a video of a glowing jellyfish. This one was discovered near the Marinara Trench. It is a weird looking little thing. I said Marinara. That's that's not what it is, is it? Not something you dip your. Uh... Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's where my breadsticks go. You put them in marinara sauce. Now I can't pronounce it. I'll just stare at the word. It's not going to come out. But uh, this one, I believe. Okay, so this this video was posted by NOAA, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, um, and the video was is produced April twenty fourth, twenty sixteen. It's jellyfish. And it is amazing when you take a look at the video. It's a short little video, about 45 seconds. And you'd have thought that somebody made it up. Mm-hmm. Like I said, no matter what little monster you can think of, there's something down under the under the waters that looks worse than that. Oh, I, I, I love this article that you just... Uh, shared over odd things in the wrong place this is the one we've talked about on several shows now I you know that's why a lot of people said you know our history aspect is maybe what 7,000 years we're talking about really good artifacts blah 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 historical mm-hmm. then you find something that's embedded in coal that took a couple of million years to form and you open it up and there's a tool inside of it and yeah, this one here is what is dated to be 500 million olds a year is old. So the rock and Kate. Okay, so what we're referring to is there's a photo, and you see a hammer with uh, a wooden handle through. It. I mean, obviously something that some humanish somebody made. You know, some animal, some animal, some person, somebody who had to have the means to take, make a metal hammerhead, put a hole in it, and run a wooden handle up it, and it's encased in rock that's four hundred million years old. The hammer itself turned. Okay, so it says in June nineteen thirty six or nineteen thirty four, according to some accounts. Max Han and his wife Emma were on a walk when they noticed a rock with wood protruding from its core. They decided to take the oddity home and later cracked it open with a hammer and chisel. Ironically, what they found within seemed to be an archaic hammer of sorts. A team of archaeologists checked it, and as it turns out, the rock encasing the hammer was dated back more than 400 million years. The hammer itself turned out to be more than 500 million years old. Additionally, a section of the handles begun had begun the transformation to coal. The hammer's head made of more than 96% iron is far more pure than anything nature could have achieved 
without assistance from modern technology? It's an interesting article and a lot of food for thought. Yeah. But if you did have civilization several million years ago and obliterated ourselves or some monster disease came through and took us all out, Earth heals itself pretty good. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, 400 million years ago. When you think about what's the, what would Earth have been like back then to have some human creature capable of doing that? Well, that's like if you go down and you see that bell, ornate bell, which is found in a lump of coal. Scroll down and you'll see that one. That's interesting as heck. You know what this proves, though? What? Is that Doctor Who does have a TARDIS. See, that explains it all. (laughs) He went back there. He accidentally left that or dropped it, and it got encased. So we've gone back in time and placed these objects. Yeah, sure. (laughs) I, I need a sound effect for conspiracy theories and stuff. But this is a good article. And when we get around to doing show notes, which I do have a volunteer, uh, a Patsy, uh, somebody willing to do it, we'll, uh, we'll have that. We'll have that in the notes that can be added. That bell looks like it's turned, doesn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's a nice looking bell. If it really was found inside of a chunk of coal that then broke and yeah. found it inside of it. It's a little hard to explain how that got there from how many years ago. Yeah, I don't know. That I mean, the, or some of the items they found and drilling through magna, and they yeah. come up with something. It's like, oh, where the heck did this come from? Yeah. Well, very interesting. Well, that does it for scuba news and our conspiracy theories. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about any diving that happened. I didn't get a chance to go out this last week. Uh, I've got a few weeks of uh, graduation parties to deal with before I'm going to be able to get back in the water. Uh, We also had Memorial Day weekend, which was a holiday here in the United States. And I think that affected a lot of people getting out and and doing any diving. Did did you get any in, Mac? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kevin, I, well, Kevin's been a diving fool lately. Uh, he took this week off, and he's been diving every day. You might have seen a couple of his uh, notations on Facebook. Yeah. But uh, we were out searching again last week doing some survey work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, we had Thursday, Thursday, and tonight again. That's why I'm late getting back again. Yeah, he, I saw he had a post from, was it last night? Where he had dove uh, Woods Lake? Uh, I think that was Reed's Lake. Was that Reed's Lake? Right. He had 10 foot of visibility, so he got two dives in on that place. Yeah, he's been doing some more research on some wrecks there. And tonight, I mean, Pawpaw was plus 70 on the surface, and down to the thermocline, it was still 60. And Lake Michigan right now, surface is 63. Yeah. And down at 55 is 45 degrees. Yeah. So chilly. if you got a chance, now I think is probably some good time. I bet you we have some good viz building. 
Uh, we'll find out. We're going back out again tomorrow. Tomorrow oh, night. Excellent. So we're, we're going to either do a scan and dive or we're taking the gear with us. So if we find something, there's been some interesting geological formations we want to look at or yeah. dive. I'd be, I'd be interested to hear what you guys, you know, whatever you bounce and take a look at. And then we got the Ann Arbor 5 scheduled for Sunday. Oh, that's coming up this Sunday. Well, excellent. Right. That's, uh, what, 160, 165 feet. Yeah, I need to get my my gear uh, updated. I need to fix my high-pressure hose before I brave that one. Oh, absolutely. Then they were talking about maybe doing a dive on the uh, crane and barge on the way back at 125. That's a good one. That's a good one. I like that as a second dive from Ann Arbor 5 because you've got enough time. You, it, it builds in some surface interval because you know, Ann Arbor 5 is, what, maybe five miles out? Uh, no. I think one's 12 and one's 16. That, and oh. that's 16. That's what some of the, the farther out wrecks that we do. Yeah. Because it's much farther than anything else that we, we dive. Because I don't I only think uh, – Ironsides is that far out. Oh, no. The Ironsides is pretty close. That's only like three or four miles. Yeah. So you do get some uh, built-in surface interval going between Ann Arbor and the Barge and Crane. Yeah. And every time I've been on the Barge and Crane, I have had, I think the worst I've had on that is maybe 25 feet viz. Well, the Green Bay is covered up with sand again, you can't even find it now. Oh, in uh, South Haven? Yeah. yeah it's covered I, up with sand. That's, that's uh, and, you know, the water is four foot higher now. Well, and that makes sense. When you have higher water, you're going to have sand depositing on certain levels. You're going to have some erosion from your higher uh, beachfront. Plus, you're going to have sandbars are going to build. You know, sandbars like about four feet deep. So that, I, I, go, I go for that. I You know, I have never done the Green Bay. It's one I have not dove on. It's an easy one. I mean, it's it's, it's a beach dive. Yeah. It's usually one of the first dives. Wolf's used to do that as a uh, certification dive. So I don't know if did he make them dive out a little deeper because he did it as a night dive. It was it was more of a pain in the ass going up and down the bluff. Oh, so they didn't it go out in a boat. test. Because I think you have to be a certain depth for it to count, and that that one to me wouldn't count. Uh, so Ann Arbor, so Ann Arbor Five, that'll be interesting here. Now, you planning on doing that one? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Uh, so then you'll have you, and we'll have Bob at least. Is Kevin doing it? Yes. Good. I think we have three boats going out. Oh, excellent! So you'll have three boats. Yeah, Dave Toneman's coming up, bringing some people. I saw he 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 messaged me and says, "Hey, you're going to be around," and I am. But I was thinking it was last weekend, so I didn't. I thought I thought maybe I'd missed him. Well, great. I got to remember. I got a glove of his. Only one though. <laughs> I think I can't remember if I if he let me try one, like I dove with one of his gloves and one of somebody else's, or if I had both of them and I only gave one back, but. Well, once again, we'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air another season. WRVO Radio, if you love hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors, you want to tune into them, RenoViolaOutdoors.com. 
You can listen to them on a variety of outlets. They have their own app as well. Our website is www.scubaobsessed.com. We're also on Twitter at scubaobsessed, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed, and we do I did do a few posts. We got a little little post going along. Also, I've, I'm in discussions with a a volunteer who's going to help us with the show notes. I'll give out his name once we've got a few of them. So, if for some reason he decides it, it's too much work, I don't want everybody to be giving him grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that would be much appreciated. Somebody help him take care of that. I've just been so busy, um, and we'll get we'll get those show notes coming. There is anybody, if you're in the California area, I did have somebody from uh, that area mentioning that there is a dive show going on this weekend, the 2016 scuba show at the Long Beach Convention Center. Have you heard about this? No. It says it's the annual dive expo, and it's returning to Long Beach Convention Center. It's going to be June 4th and 5th. For 29 years, so this is the 29th year, the Scuba Show has been connecting Southern California with the spirit, magic, and adventure of diving, written only as a marketing person could. A great event for anyone who's ever considered taking up the water sport. The Scuba Show is the ideal place to get information and to get started throughout the weekend. Attendees will have access to hundreds of enthusiastic diving experts and passionate diving community. All of them are excited to share their knowledge and stories. Uh, so that's nice. I got a, a dive show they're expecting about 10,000 uh, 10, people to show up. There's going to be 300 exhibitors, vendors, and dive experts from around the world to show. Uh, uh, scuba show activities include cooking demonstrations, interactive art, a film festival themed photo booth, a new product showcase, virtual reality diving experience, and its popular Saturday night party at the Aquarium of the Pacific. In addition, over $40,000 in door prizes will be given away. The show producer, Mark Young, says Southern California is home to the strongest markets of scuba divers in North America. It's always a pleasure to see this very special, very passionate community of divers come together every year to share their experiences and knowledge. It takes place Saturday, June 4th. It's from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And Sunday, June 5th, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Long Beach Convention Center, located 300 East Ocean Boulevard, Long Beach, California, which I don't know why you need the zip code, but maybe Google wants that, 90802. Discounted tickets are available online. You look at scubashow.com, you're going to be able to find a way to get there. Full tickets can be produced, can be produced, can be sold at the door. Single day tickets range from $10 exhibit hall to $30 exhibits plus seminars. You've and got mail. Two day passes are $59, includes exhibit hall and seminars. So $10, I don't know, is that the advanced? Doesn't say. But that's not bad for a dive show. No, it sounds like our world underwater, uh, California style. Exactly, and I and I would say that it's probably be so. It says since 1987, so not quite as long as our world underwater. So excellent. To let us know, I, I saw a post from uh, Steve Lewis, and he was saying he wished he could be there. So if he says it's good, I expect it's good. Okay, I'm trying to think. Do we have anything else we need to plug? I mean, it's just that time of year. You need to be diving. Get into yeah. your dive dive shops. Uh, you know, they're they're 
moving inventory. They're updating things. I'm sure your dive shops got a lot of things. Anything that you're seeing new this year as far as gear, equipment, drop us a line. We'd like to hear about it. If there's something that you've noticed that's new or different when you're in the dive shops. Also, what are you looking for? What's your, what's your next gear purchase? If you're out there diving, having a good time, what's the next item on your list? Does everybody kind of go in the same thing where you in the order in which you buy things, or is there some items that everybody seems to want to get? Yeah, Mac, you had a dive reel that you had bought this year. Yep, yep, I did. Need to modify it a little bit because the uh, friction knob on it's a little bit too big, and I tried to take it off to put a a wing nut on it so I'd have better handle control of it. Mm-hmm. The sucker's a press fit in there; it's not screwed in. Yeah. So it's like, okie dokie, what am I going to do now? Yeah. yeah. And and who knows what the reason is for industrial design for a product, but Kevin had some excellent ideas of uh, modifications he made to his. So I I think I would. Do at least some of those, because he's there. It's actually a really nice dive reel. I, I like both yours and his. I think they're a good design. Yep. See, I, I need that's that's another item on my on my short list is uh, to get those. But well, I'm modifying my finger reel to use with the bag. Right. Well, and that's what I want. I I think that I would like to have a finger reel. And then a full-blown dive reel. You know, so a finger okay. reel will be smaller, uh, pocket-sized, and the, the, the other dive reel will be much larger, you know, a 300-plus. Well, everybody used, I mean, everybody carries one when we're diving the big lake. Yes. And, you know, it's like, to me, the finger reel is disposable. If I lose it, I lose it. It's no big deal. Right. Well, and the nice thing about the finger reels, like, say you want to, float a lift bag you're already out on your regular reel you don't want to reel that back up and then float a bag you want to have use your finger reel all right i'm modifying mine so i can control it because you can't control a regular finger reel you try it and it's going to buzz right off your finger it's it's spin the skin right off the end oh yes well it'll take it right off your wetsuit yeah so i'm rigging mine so i have a little control knob on it and a handle yeah. And then that goes with the with the bag I keep on the BC now. Now, couldn't you run the string maybe through a carabiner? Yes. That would help you have a little bit of control? Yeah, I took a PVC pipe that fits it to go through it mm-hmm. and then put a, like a little fulcrum up to the top so I can hang on to that and let the damn thing unspeel without taking my finger with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I one of my next purchases is going to be a uh, – I need to get my uh, a back plate and a wing. Oh wow! I missed. Uh, we had a good conversation going in the chat room. I wasn't even paying attention. We have uh, Dave Tonneman is in there. Hi, Dave. <laughs> yeah, did he says hey, I have a shop that I know that can help you with a hose. <laughs> I bet you can. Yeah, I don't know if you heard the story, Dave, but I had on my high pressure hose. It literally disintegrated. Uh, it is. Just falling apart. Somebody didn't do a good gear, gear check, did they? Hmm. I did a gear check in the water. Isn't that what you're <laughs> supposed to do? Them? And I knew this had been coming. I, I have an idea that it was, it had been leaking around, uh, you know, behind my head where I couldn't see it for 
quite a while. Uh, but now it's just all up and down the hose. And while I won't say that it was a defect, I can't believe that a hose, either that hose had been around a while before I got it, because I don't, or it was just defective, because I can't believe that five years a hose should, or six years a hose could give up like that. But oh that well. looked a little older than five or six years. Yeah. Yeah, because that was, uh, yeah, because I bought that the same time I bought my regulator. But that's, that could be, they could have done the, uh, they could have pieced pieces together. Yeah, I agree with you, Mac. I don't think it, it could have, but a, you know, it, it, it didn't die the first year. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the warranties are, but I'm sure it outlived the warranty. Yeah. And considering that the average diver, what dies eight times, dies, dives eight times and then is done. Uh, you know, they, they didn't count on me having it. Oh, uh, uh, Dave is reminding me, we talked about earlier how I ended up with gloves. We did, I did a comparison dive where I was diving two different gloves. And I think his was a nicer glove. Should have had both of them. But yeah, if uh, Dave will have to connect this weekend and I'll get your dive glove back. Let's see, Mac, you got anything you want to plug? Nope, I'm I'm doing good. Okay. I keep yelling at people if you're not getting wet, but nobody's listening, so I just get wet and say, "Yeah, well, that's, that's you, you got to do it by example. You get in the water and you just show them up." Um, I'm I'm so out of the practice of going every week, getting <laughs> yeah, sure I will, uh, but getting everything all together that you know, it's like I can always find an excuse not to go. I just need to I need to change the mindset now. I have mowed my yard. This is a record for yard mowing. I have mowed my yard three times completely. Yeah, and this is front by the by the road. Yeah, and I for I, I've got twelve acres, so I'm not mowing all twelve acres, but I did do at least two and a half. So, let's see. I think it's time for a dive joke. Yes, I'm. Anxiously awaiting. Well, you have to let me know if I did this one, but I don't think I did. So we have a six-year-old and a four-year-old child of a scuba diver, and they're upstairs in their bedroom. It says, you know, said the six-year-old, I think it's about time we start cussing. The four-year-old nods his head in approval, and the six-year-old continues, when we go downstairs for breakfast, I'm going to say hell and you say ass. Okay, the four-year-old agrees with enthusiasm. Their mother walks in the kitchen and asks the six-year-old what he wants for breakfast. Ah, oh, hell, Mom, I just want some Cheerios. Whack, he flips out of the chair, tumbles across the floor, gets up, runs upstairs, crying his eyes out with his mother's in hot pursuit, slapping his rear every step. The mom looks at his, locks him in his room and shouts, you just stay there until I let you out. She comes back downstairs, looks at the four-year-old, asks with a stern voice, and what do you want for breakfast, young man? I don't know, he blubbers. But you can bet your ass it won't be Cheerios. <laughs> I like that one. I don't know. Maybe I, for some reason I think I've done that. Maybe I did that the week you weren't here. But yeah, it, it, well, it, if I did, everybody can drop me a line. The show at scubaobsessed.com. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.
Recording has been completed. Still there? Yeah. I'm just typing to Dave. I was asking when are you getting in town, and he said uh, getting in tomorrow about noon. He's teaching a class at Wolf's. Ah. Uh.